It's Dr. Stu's Podcast at drstuespodcast.com. I'm Brian Whitman, along with my pal, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. You can subscribe to the podcast, and we recommend that you do on iTunes. Write a nice review for Dr. Stu's Podcast. Give them five stars right here on the main page at Dr. Stu's Podcast. You see right there on the right, we got some links. Got a link to Dr. Stu's blog. We got a, some pictures. Got a lot of fun stuff going on this website. And by the way, when we have guests, of course, uh, we always have links to their websites, this podcast is not just a place for great passion and perspective, but it's an information resource, I like to tell people. Yeah, and we try to do it in a, in a, a way that keeps people interested in listening and, and having a little bit of humor, a little, a little suspense. They never know what's going to come next. Well, from you, you're a wild card. We never know what Dr. Stu, I mean. You, you know, yeah, I'm such a wild guy. <laughs> you're so funny. It's not me that's the wild card. I think that's projection on your part. Oh, is way. that what that is? Yes. Is that what's You are going the crazy through? man. Am I the crazy man? You are the guy that dresses up as a woman for Halloween and does all these things. I don't really do that sort of thing. Right. You you never did that in all your years for Halloween? You never dressed as a woman? I know we're... No, now I, it's Thanksgiving I, time, but by the way, no, happy Thanksgiving. I have not. What are your Thanksgiving plans? I don't... I, I dress... When I dress as a woman, I don't go out. I just, oh, okay. I just stay home. Okay. Well, you know what? That's a good piece of advice there. But wait, can we edit that that part out? No. Yeah. We'll we'll leave that in. I think that was all fine. right. So listen, uh, here here I here we are today. This is a this is an interesting week for me because this is uh, Kennedy assassination week. On you know all things media are talking about the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, the fiftieth anniversary. Yeah, and I do remember that I was in second grade spelling class at the time. You were an embryo, or you you were an uh, ovum yet? You weren't born yet. I was nine years. It was nine years before anyone had even heard of Brian Whitman. That's correct. But I was a uh, second grader, and <laughs> yeah. uh, I remember everything about that day. And I'm I would like to ask you, Brian Whitman. Yes. You know you've you're in the media. You've read a lot. You're well read. Uh, who killed Kennedy? Ah, well, thank you for asking, because I, I, while I don't have answers, I have a lot of questions about who killed John Kennedy. I do not believe in the lone gunman Lee Harvey Oswald theory. I don't believe that. I think there are too many questions about what happened there, questions about the credibility of the Secret Service officers who were serving President Kennedy and serving our country on that day. I mean, for example, you mentioned the Secret Service, a guy driving the car. Why, Dr. Stu, if you watch the Zapruder film or you watch these films of the Kennedy shooting, the first shot goes off. And then the limousine seems to slow down rather than accelerate. Whoa, they shot the president. Whoa, let's slow down so maybe they can get another shot off. I mean, that was like the craziest thing for, for starters. You don't have to be a real smart guy, and I ain't, to figure out that that car slows down after the first shot. I don't understand that. And then you'll know this as a doctor. You'll appreciate this, I think. Uh, all of the reports about the autopsy and the chain of command and the autopsy was so sort of uh, not by the book. And for a while, they didn't know where President Kennedy's brain was. Do they know now? Uh, I understand that the brain was given uh, to the late Bobby Kennedy two years after the shooting. They gave him the brain in an autopsy. Don't they take all the organs of the body? And put it in the chest cavity. Isn't that what happens? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I, uh, that I'm too far removed from from that sort of thing. I you, don't think in those particular instances that they would necessarily do that to bury it all together. Okay, you I asked think they me. may very well have put that in the archives, but I didn't know that they'd even found the brain. Yeah, right. No, no. Apparently, the fact, the fact that it was even missing yeah. is, leaves leaves much to my, you know. My biggest part about the whole thing is I don't believe he was a lone gunman either, and I'm not. You know, I. I 
I want to talk a little bit about conspiracies and about going over, you know, people overblowing things and and making mountains out of molehills. But sure. it just doesn't all it doesn't pass the smell test. The only yeah, part that's you know, the best way I, to put it. I just I watched the there's documentaries on every channel, uh, you know, on Discover Channel this week, especially uh, yeah. uh, going on. And I watched one where one of the theories was that the Secret Service agent who held the AR-15 rifle, mm. when he stood up in the car, picked up the gun, and the car lurched, and he may have actually shot Kennedy in the back of the head, which would make sense why the Secret Service was so secretive about getting the body out of there and all that other stuff. But this is the first time I'd ever heard of such a thing. But they went through the whole ballistics thing and how bullets don't make holes like that and they don't do certain things and again it's way over my head mine too the only part that makes me believe it's not a conspiracy and that he was the lonely lone gunman is because i just don't believe that you can keep a conspiracy like that a secret for 50 years somebody had to know something would have told their daughter or their son or their wife or on their deathbed would have come forward or put a letter in a will that said, when I die, please reveal the fact that I was behind the, the picket fence in the grassy knoll or, or something. And, and nothing has ever come forward. Well, you know, it's interesting uh, that you asked me. That's why I love doing this podcast with you. We never quite know uh, uh, sometimes what we're going to wind up talking about. But on this uh, week of the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy, I tell you about all these questions that I have. And I, and I did take a trip uh, to Dallas and I've been to the grassy knoll and I was sort of into that. That was uh, actually fun. I know that sounds like an odd word, but I went with a group of friends, and we had a fun afternoon. Did you there. take your metal detector to see if you could find any uh, cartridges <laughs> I did. I, I, I was uh, searching the grassy knoll for shell casings. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't want to yet say what I uncovered, but it's still at the lab. I'm doing, I'll work up on what I uncovered. Yep. I'm yep. kidding, of course, but I went up to the sixth floor, which is now a museum from where Lee Harvey Oswald, if you buy that, from where he shot the gun. I'll tell you something else very quickly. Uh, and, and you're right about conspiracies. For a conspiracy so vast so grand, so widespread, you'd have to keep so many people quiet. That is an interesting question. To me, one of the more compelling or one of the more uh, persuasive things in all of this, if you wanted to persuade somebody to believe that the Kennedy shooting was not all we're led to believe, when Lee Harvey Oswald, when Jack Ruby steps out there and shoots the shooter, I mean, that right there says, well, there's somebody, maybe Jack Ruby or a whole lot of people behind him who don't want Lee Harvey Oswald talking. So they take him out. My dad would tell me as a kid that he was watching live television. I watched that. When Oswald was shot. Did you watch it as well? I don't know if I was live, but I, I do remember the footage either watching it live or on the news. I mean, my mom was so moved by the we you know we were democrats my mom was she probably know, loved john oh kennedy. she loved john kennedy and it was it, it everybody i knew was in tears i came home that afternoon and we sat and watched the television we watched the funeral i remember the original scene of little jj coming out and saluting yeah i i, re, I remember that but i do remember the lee harvey oswald thing and and the idea that you know, I know it was 1963 and, and security was a whole different ball game in those days, but the idea that they would even bring him out in front of all these people, why would they do that? Right. Unless you're saying right. they were bringing a lamb to slaughter. Right, to make him available for, for uh, shooting himself. I mean, and then, right, Jack Ruby just steps right out and shoots Lee Harvey Oswald. By the way, we talked a number of weeks ago on uh, Dr. Stu's podcast. We talked after the shooting happened at LAX, since we're sort of on some other things here. I thought of you this week because uh, you made some very compelling 
comments about uh, the situation at LAX and leaving people in the airplanes on the tarmac there after the shooting. Have you seen the report that the TSA officer who died, who was killed, Gerardo Hernandez, was left for 33, 33 minutes. minutes on the floor there bleeding out before they removed him from the airport and put him in an ambulance? Why in the world would that wait happen 33 minutes? Well, this again gets back to my whole theory about how you know, everybody's the the trial lawyers of America have got everybody afraid to do anything for fear of being sued, and so they didn't want to allow people in too soon because if they allow people in too soon and someone and the place isn't secure, someone will be could be sued if someone else gets shot. Right. The problem I have with that is that the guy is shot. You know what? What happened to? leave no man behind what happened if that were the military they wouldn't leave the guy sitting there for 33 minutes right they'd have come in there and they'd have come in guns blazing and they'd have dragged him out of there and they brought him to the outside and they would have then thrown him in the ambulance and according to the reports there was an officer who kneeled down and i get a lot of places doctors do to find a pulse i think the neck is one of them right most common okay so uh they said that uh, one of the officers uh kneeled down and checked for a pulse and apparently asserted there at lax and the terminal Quote, he's dead. And uh, the question now becomes, in one of the reports I read, I think in the Los Angeles Times, was whether or not this person who made that assertion was qualified to make that determination about somebody dying. When somebody dies, Dr. Stu, I read a report uh, pretty recently, uh, kind of a nutty report, but uh, sort of this, uh, the idea was that we could do more to save people or the idea of uh, that, that, that sometimes it takes a long time for the brain to die or it takes maybe longer for everything to sort of settle down. And there is a window and we hear about people having death experiences, sure. dying and coming back. There really is a window, right? I mean, I, I mean not for everybody. There's an opportunity to bring yeah, people back. People, right? the heart, people's hearts stop sometimes, and then you perform CPR, and you can get it restarted, or you can give them a, a shock to their chest and possibly get it restarted. So I, I don't know whether they're qualified or not, but, but if the guy was still bleeding, right. then he probably still had blood pressure, because if you don't have a blood pressure... I mean, it's hard to bleed if you don't have a blood pressure. Right. Can you imagine? I, I, again, I don't know enough about forensics. Maybe you need to get Dr. Uh, uh, what's his name? Michael Bodner. Or Michael Bodner. Yeah, yeah, I've had him on. Get those guys on. <laughs> but, th you know, again, that's The for, OJ guys. All uh, the OJ we'll, guys. We'll get them on the next podcast. Okay. That's for another show. The reason I sort of... We're not going to solve the Kennedy assassination here. We're not? No. Wait a minute. I thought I had on good authority that we were going to come in here and answer that question definitively and put it to bed here on the 50th anniversary. You're uh, telling me you can't do that? No, nope, can't do that. I thought doctors could okay. do anything. Nope. We can't. <laughs> but why are you on conspiracies today? What's in your mind? Well, here's the deal. Um, you know, I was listening, as I do when I'm driving over here, I'm listening to the radio, and I'm hearing things, and it starts to all come together in my mind. Recently, I wrote a blog on my uh, uh, blog page at uh, supportdrfishbein.blogspot.com. And we do have a link and right here. A link, yeah, there's a banner up on the Dr. Stu Podcast website. And, the, and it was about... Uh, this article that recently came out about APGAR score of zero at five minutes and there's a tenfold increase at home versus in the versus in the hospital. And for those who might not know, the APGAR score is what this term you've used before. It's a score that was uh, that's given to newborns at usually one minute and five minutes and sometimes ten minutes, mm. and it rates how they're doing. And obviously, a score of zero means they're <laughs> they're not doing very well. Right. But the reason I brought this up and I want to talk a little bit about some of the points made, but when you look at how, if people are, have a cause or an ideology 
and they want to promote their cause or the ideology, sometimes they go way over the way overboard or way off the deep end when they're promoting it. For instance, um, every crisis that's been around in the, you know in in my lifetime right. has always been overblown. You know whether it's global warming. Whether what happened to the thing about the ozone? What happened to the you know, wasn't the ozone a problem? How come it's not a problem anymore? Right. H one N one flu was supposed to kill everybody. It didn't kill hardly anybody. And I, th- I think uh, you know the media is responsible for a lot of the hype or for the hype, really quite plainly. But I think people who have a motivation for or or have some agenda, something to gain, some agenda, uh, will often overhype something. They'll often say something is is much worse than it is mm-hmm. because they have an agenda. And that's the way I feel it is with the anti-home birthing people, is that they keep coming out, they keep making an effort, and eventually what happens is people stop listening to these sorts of things. The next time somebody comes out with a warning about some flu, I mean, how many people are really going to be worried about it? Or some, some listeria in the cheese or something like yeah, that. Yeah, recall of food or something. Or mad cow disease, in which got everybody hysterical, and there yeah. wasn't a single case right. in the United States. These sorts of things. And so the same thing happens with home birthing. And this article that came out, there were two of them in last month's, the October ver- uh, uh, editions of the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Uh-huh. And one of them was co-authored by this guy who we've mentioned before. His name is Frank Chervenak. Yeah. And he is from Cornell University. And he's a self-proclaimed ethicist, and he has a thing, what I would call almost a hard-on against home birth, uh-huh. because he tends to do... <laughs> Where's your microphone, Randy? Uh, Randy, Randy that. enjoyed that. Randy right. liked that. That was good. Yeah, see, Randy's his guttural humor. Yeah. All I, just, if I say penis, he gets... <laughs> he starts to giggle. He loves it. All right, so anyway, getting, getting back... Vagina. <laughs> getting back to my, my point... Excuse me, one I just wonder. Testicles! <laughs> God, that's almost worse than Hillary Clinton's laugh. <laughs> Can you do a Hillary Clinton imitation? Uh, no, I don't. Oh, okay. No, I don't. But I Can should you... work on it if she's elected president. You might it. have to. But I do the husband, you know, so that's really, you know. That's... Do you do a Bill Clinton? Uh, yes, I do. Let me watch this. Testicles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Dr. Stu, you think that he has an agenda, this Frank guy? Yeah, and Frank... again, this is not his article, but there's certain lines in the article that are directly quotes from previous articles that he's written. And one of the conclusions of this article, based on the information, which I'm going to spend a little bit of time debunking in a minute, sure. is that it's professionally irresponsible for doctors to support women who want to choose a home birth. And they should advise against it, and they should not support it. And he's oh. very vehement about mm-hmm. this. And really, that, that, that is a message. Obviously, Dr. Stu is a physician who does support home birth, uh, who does not advise against it. I mean, in some cases, you would, of course. But uh, so that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a message uh, right to you. Yeah, according to this ethicist, I am professionally irresponsible. Mm. And anyone else who backs midwives or supports them or, or, or collaborates with midwives who do home birthing is professionally irresponsible. And, and that, just, that just doesn't sit well. I mean, does anybody listening really believe that that I or anybody else are professionally irresponsible? Right, no, I, I, I don't believe that. I think that uh, I haven't read the article, but uh, let me give the other side here, voice to the other side. It would seem to me that uh, the doctor who, who authored the article that we're talking about, uh, he would probably say, and I'm just thinking as I would think, if I were a doctor, or, or and I've made this case to you, uh, quite frankly, on home birthing, uh, in a lot of different uh scenarios here on dr stew's podcast it seems to some folks extreme that uh you would choose to have your baby away from all of the 
medical equipment, all of the devices, all of the resources that can be used so conveniently, if necessary, at the hospital. Right? You've heard me say that. Yeah, kind of Brian. Thing but but yes, but it's but that's an opinion, and everyone's entitled to their opinion. Well, it's not an opinion that if you're in the hospital, you're closer to the stuff. No, that's not an opi- that's not an opinion. But what is an opinion is that it's safer to be in the hospital for all women. That is an opinion because the data doesn't support that. And if people want to uh, go on a crusade against the risks of home birthing, they're dishonest if they don't equally talk about the risks of hospital birthing. Let me ask you a question I've never asked you before. Is it ever unsafe to be in the hospital? Yes. Yes. How might it be unsafe or less than safe to be in the hospital? Because many of the things the hospitals do are not evidence-based. They're done for convenience or expediency. I guess maybe those are the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're done for economic reasons. They're done uh, because that is sort of the community standard. And, you know, for, for, again, specifically, if we want specific things, bringing someone in before 39 weeks for an induction is is essentially now even American College of OBGYN thinks that that's something there's no reason to do that and right. induction should only be done for medical indications I can't tell you how we still hear women being brought in for induction at 39 weeks in a day or two because the doctor thinks the baby's big or the doctor thinks the baby's not moving as much or the fluid is low and even though the testing is fine and it, it, whatever they've now got a point where they've made this woman nervous and they bring them in and that is dangerous mm. that that leads to a you know we have a 33 percent c-section rate in the hospital that is not normal that is what not nature how nature designed it how does our c-section rate here in america compare to c-section rates in other countries well it depends um, most other countries uh i would say westernized countries have a c-section rate that's lower than ours mm. um you know our our mortality rates and our, our mortality need, rate is our, unfortunately uh, very high, isn't it? Well, it, it is, but we in some ways it is, but in some ways it is the way we gather statistics. And I don't want to really get into that today because okay. it's getting off topic. Sure. But I understand what you're saying. I'm just saying that you can become overzealous, and I would tell you that this gentleman is 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 overzealous to the point where his his research and his opinions are skewed and and lack. Um, He's losing credibility. The basic scientific integrity mm. that you should have. And let me give examples. Sure. Because in this article, he specifically states that that the rate of a zero APGAR at five minutes is 10 times higher in home birth than in hospital birth. Is that true? Now he Well, hang on. Okay. He breaks it down into different groups of hospital birth with a doctor, hospital birth with a midwife, you know, home birth with a midwife. Okay. But... I'm just going to, for this, I'm just going to talk hospital. I'm going to lump all the hospital births together, and I'm going to lump the home births together. Okay. Now, what he says is that there's 1.6, excuse me, we're going to have to edit this part again, too. There is 0.16 per thousand APGAR scores of zero in the hospital. Wow. And there's 1.6 per thousand APGAR scores of zero at home. All right. Now, a couple things about that. That's a tenfold increase. Right. However, it's ten times a very small number. Is still a very small number. Mm. And the risk of one point six per thousand, even if all his other data, which I'm going to debunk in a second, it was correct, 
is still only one in a th- one or two in a thousand. Mm-hmm. So give the information to a woman and then let her decide. But don't say it's professionally irresponsible to support something that has a risk of one in a thousand when you're supporting a, an institution that has a risk of one in three that the woman's going to have a C-section. That that NICU admissions are going to be uh, higher. Mm-hmm. When you, when you give birth at a hospital than when you give birth at home. Yeah. Just by the nature of the way that the system is designed. The second thing about this study is that he takes that number of 1.6 and he, takes, and he gets those numbers from birth certificate records. All right? Now, birth certificate records are notoriously unreliable. Mm. You don't even know sometimes who fills them out. The president doesn't even have one. Well, that's true, too. What? He has one. Oh, yeah, we just haven't seen it's just, it. It's just phony. Oh, yeah, we got to find that birth certificate. But they're, they're notoriously unreliable. Uh-huh. They're often filled out by administrative personnel. I know in my lifetime, I have signed birth certificates and death certificates for people that I wasn't at their birth or their death because I happened to be the resident on call. So am I, oh, is that something? And what happens if somebody has a, uh, a birth at home mm. that was unplanned? Yeah. All right. And the baby dies at home. Is that a, is that a death at home because... Is that the equal to this, a midwife taking care of a patient? No, but it just says place of birth, home, attendant, midwife. Now, for the most part, a lot of birth certificates don't list who the attendant was. Mm-hmm. And the person that signs it doesn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily the attendant. And up until 2003, the birth certificate records didn't even list place of, of birth or who attended the birth. In 2008... I just uh, the other study that's in the magazine. I know this is getting int- uh, intense for you. I can see your eyes rolling. I don't want to. I don't want to overwhelm you with numbers, but this is important stuff. Sure. In the other study in the American Journal, they admit that the 2003 birth certificate yeah. by 2008, which is in the middle of this study period, mm-hmm. only 50% of the hospitals in the country were using that birth oh, certificate. I see. So 50% of the birth certificates possibly used in in by doc, by this Cornell study. Uh huh. They have had faulty information. I don't even know where they got their information. I don't even know how they extrapolated who was the attendant, uh, who was the attending uh, practitioner, and whether it was an attended home, intended home birth, or not an intended home birth. Well, there seems to be, Doctor Stu. You know, th- this great, uh, really, this great effort. I mean, the advocates, uh, you are one uh, for home birth, birth outside the hospital. You guys are very eloquent and very passionate. On the other side, there is a lot of passion from those who are against home birth. I mean, you, you talk about this article that that was written, and it is a straight shot at uh, at, at those who birth at home and those who advocate for those who want to give birth at home. I. I I would ask you, I guess it's always sort of a question uh, that uh, it's always sometimes difficult uh, to answer these types of questions that call on us to be critical of ourselves or sort of do an inventory of ourselves. Is there anything that you would say to, to for a moment to sort of entertain uh, those who are so critical of home birth? Is there anything in all of your experience that you can see or suggest that home birthing and the home birthing community. Is there anything you guys could do better? Is there anything in sort of analyzing the way you do things or, or your systems? Uh, are, are there improvements that you could make, generally speaking, that might, as the author of this article uh, seems to desire, uh, increase safety? Well, I'm not sure that you can increase safety by doing any one thing. I think what the home birthing community could do better is they could publish their data and make it more available to people. But they're, most home birth people are not scientists. You know, they're not academicians. Mm-hmm. They don't have the time. 
you know, we heard in the previous podcast where, you know, Beth Cannon, she's busy working and stuff like that. She doesn't have the time right. to be involved in politics. She doesn't, you know, she says, you know, I don't want to wait 20 more years to see this happen. We don't have that sort of time. So, but I think if we could make our statistics more available and, and also, accessible. and also I would, I would, it's never going to happen. Okay. But I think that before these physicians all criticize home birthing, maybe they ought to attend a few of them. Mm-hmm. Just come to a few, yeah. talk to some women, have some forums where women who've had home births can come and speak, and they should show up. We have, we have conferences all over the country. There's never any academic physicians there. I would love the opportunity to debate the physicians from Cornell University. Right. I would love to debate the inter- internet uh, provocateurs that hate home birth, but they don't want to come out of their little shells mm-hmm. and talk to us. Have you found that uh, many times, Dr. Stu, you've extended to a colleague, to another physician, the invitation to appear at a home birth, and she or he says no thanks? Or- they, tell me, uh, uh, they would tell me that some of them would love to do it, but they're worried about their malpractice carrier. What, simply for attending? And- yes, because you know what? There is a, a, there's a legal precedent that if they're there and something goes wrong, even if they're there just as a spectator. Wow. Well, that's the American legal system. There really? you go. Really? Yeah. They'll decline an invitation to be an observer at a home birth for fear of how it might impact their insurance? Yes. And you know what, Brian? I've actually asked a few of my colleagues who are not supportive of home birth to come on Dr. Stu's podcast. Yeah. Can't quite get them on here yet. I'm working on it. I'm going to try to find some people. I want to have some people that we can have an honest debate with. Yeah, people should know that in between Dr. Stu and me physically is a very comfortable couch. Look at that. There's even a pillow. Randy, you've got a great place here. Got a great pillow. It's a very, there's a, there's very You get the corner seat right there on Dr. Stu's podcast. You can come in and engage us and have this dialogue. Um, uh, uh, it, no, hang on. Before you go anymore, I want to... I want to get two more points in, and then we can dialogue oh, a little sure, bit more. Sure. Uh, one is about um, the fact of a five-minute APGAR score of zero at home versus a five-minute APGAR score of zero at the hospital. Let me ask you a question, Brian, and you're not, you don't even have to be medically oriented to know this. Okay. If a baby is born at home, say stillbirth, or with you know, a very low heartbeat, and, and we, we do our resuscitative efforts that we can do at home, but we, we're not successful or the baby is stillborn, the baby's going to have a five-minute APGAR of zero. At a hospital, if a baby's born stillborn, all right, what happens to that baby? I don't know. Okay. Well, the, the NICU team comes, all right, and they try to work their magic, and they may work on the baby for 20 or 30 or 40 minutes. And by definition, all the baby has to do is have a heart rate greater than one to have an APGAR score of one, mm-hmm. all right? Or it has to be ventilated and the color has to be slightly pink to have an APGAR score of one or two. I see. So if the NICU team is working on a baby at three or four minutes of life, by five minutes, the chance of it having a zero APGAR score is about zero. So am I surprised that there's less zero APGARs at five minutes at hospitals than I am at home? No. Do I, does anyone believe it's a tenfold apples being apples? I mean, you have to be really crazy to believe that, the, that this data isn't skewed. Again, there's an agenda here, and the agenda is not being honest, all right? How do they know that a five-minute APGAR score of zero at the hospital isn't, isn't the rare baby that was born with an anomaly that no one tried to resuscitate? Mm-hmm. Because every other baby born at a hospital, unless it's a known stillbirth, okay, yeah. is going to have an APGAR score greater than zero right. because the, the NICU team is going to be working on them. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about stillbirths for a second. 
There's no differentiation in the article about a baby that's born alive versus a baby that's born as a stillbirth. All they're saying is APGAR score of zero at five minutes. Well, so being almost as obsessive as you are, I woke up this morning with this thought in my head. Right. I went to the internet and I looked at the stillbirth rate in the United States. The stillbirth rate in the United States is three per thousand. Okay. That means for every 1,000 births, three of them are stillbirth. That's correct. Okay. Okay. Now, taking to the effect that about 82% of the births in the country were included in this study, let's take 82% of three in 1,000, which is 2.7 to 2.8 per thousand stillbirths in the country. Now, how many of those stillbirths are going to have an APGAR score of zero? Well, all of them. All of them. Right. Great. Okay. Now, if 99% of them are born in the hospital then shouldn't the five-minute APGAR rate of zero in the country be 2.7 to 2.8%? Mm-hmm. Excuse me, not 2.8%, but 2.8 per 1,000? Right. But it's only 0.16 per 1,000 So in the study. So what happened if the, if the stillbirth rate in the United States is 3 per 1,000 or mm-hmm. 0.3%? Right. How can it be less than that in this study? Well, I don't know that it could be. Well, it is. Right. So what did they do to the data? What, how did they come? How did they come up with 0.16 per thousand when it's 0.3 per thousand baseline? So the so, so it is obviously your contention that the data is being manipulated. There's a manipulation of numbers, and you said a moment ago, Doctor Stu, you're no doubt right about that. People with an agenda, people trying to make a point, whether it's a political point or a professional point, whatever it is. Uh, th- People are expert or can be expert at manipulating data to make a certain point. I think what you said a moment ago is very important to this conversation. The reluctance or the refusal of some medical professionals, folks in the medical establishment, to not even see a home birth, to not even go there and see that. That's sort of the pragmatic experience. You've had it so many times. You've participated so many times in births outside the hospital. So while it sounds foreign and exotic and sort of out there to people who have never participated have never seen it when you have regularly seen these events witnessed these events been been a participant uh it it takes on a whole other sort of complexion well when you get people like the cornell the cornell people putting this stuff out there and saying it's professionally irresponsible it makes it very difficult for medical students or residents to say to their mentors and their teachers you know i want to learn breach delivery I want to learn about home births. I want to work with midwives. Can I go spend a month or so going to home births? And yeah. they're not going to let them do it. Because and there's, such a, there's such a stigma attached to well, it. Well, because of these papers like this, which are based on, at best, terrible bias. And they're, they're skewing, you know, and, and so so there's no opportunity for these young physicians who, have when I, the few that I've talked to, are extremely interested in hearing more about normal birthing. Right. They don't get normal birthing in their residency programs. They're not involved with that because that's not interesting. Right. And, and, and the nurses take care of that and they come and catch the baby. But they really do have an intellectual curiosity. And I hate to see it keep getting beaten down by, by papers that are disingenuous like this paper. It really bothers me. The second paper in the American Journal, by the way, is much fairer. It's, it's much more honest about the flaws in their data collection and the, and the inability to be certain about these sorts of things and the numbers that they can't be sure. And, and they're, they use an APGAR score of four or less in their study, and, it, and the outcomes are, are, are significantly different yeah. than, the, than the crazy one with the APGAR of zero at five minutes. I would encourage people to go to my blog at www.supportdrfishbein, that's D-R-Fishbein, 
www.blogspot.com or go to Dr. Uh, Dr. Stu's podcast website and click on the banner yeah, we have just to the right. Right. L- let me ask you, uh, you know, we talk uh, in, in, the, in the few moments we have remaining, you talk about young people, you talk about the future of sort of birthing and, 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 and home birthing. Uh, and, and I know that you had, uh, we talked a number of weeks ago about a student who was shadowing you. So I know you have interaction uh, with uh, young people, medical students or soon to be medical students. There is this association with home birthing with sort of earthiness and this sort of at one with nature we've talked about this we sort of joked about this sometimes in the past how there's this kind of earthy quality uh to those who might support home birthing and uh that's kind of in right to be at one with the earth is kind of in it's sort of kind of an in vogue thing to be earthy to be aware of our planet and all of that it would seem to me relying on that that the future generations of doctors might be more sympathetic to the idea of home birthing because younger people have sort of a more liberal worldview in so many cases. Do you have hope for home birthing and the future of it based on the new generation of medical students? You know, Brian, I have to tell you that we've done now 28, 29, I don't know how many podcasts we've done. You have an amazing ability to pick up on stuff and, and, and put it into eloquent words in your questions i i just love working with you, you because nice? that well but well, that that's that's a great question and the answer to that is if they're allowed to do it i think the intellectual curiosity is there i think the background is there i think the the demand by women is there and the more, the more information that gets out there that's not hysterical that's not blown out of proportion that is that setting it, off alarms. Yeah, that's right. not uh, uh, you know the sky is falling. The sky is falling. The sky is. I mean, what was the, what was the story with the boy who cried wolf? You you cry wolf so many times. All these terrible things are happening at home birth, or these terrible things are happening to the ozone, or the terrible things are going to happen from the bird flu or the H one N one flu, and they don't happen. Eventually, it's like warning labels on on products that you buy. Or you going, ignore them. You, you ignore them. You, 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 you get a contract from somebody. Who reads the small print? You can't do it anymore. You're to- totally saturated. This has to stop. There has to be, there has to be intellectual and academic honesty. Mm. And I really find it distasteful. And I'm hoping that the younger generation of physicians, when they hear things like this, and they get opportunities to be exposed to alternative things, are going to challenge their mentors and be able to say... You know, this doesn't sound right to me. It doesn't pass the smell test. Sure. Just like the lone gunman theory. Yeah, just like the JFK. Coming full circle. Yeah, there you go. Coming back around. Be on the hunt for information. That's one of the important takeaways from this podcast. Be on the hunt for information, uh, whether it's home birthing or or anything else. And uh, we do have uh, an email here, askdrstew at gmail.com. This email comes from Jen, and she writes... <laughs> Hi, Doctor Stu. Our producer woke up. You know, he was playing with his cat. Yeah, Jamie's a cute cat. Yeah, she is really growing up nicely. Too. She, they grow so fast, don't oh, they? She's so cute. Jen writes, "Hi, Doctor Stu. I first met you at the Sanctuary's Nervous Anticipation class, and have listened to your podcast. Well, thank you for that, Jen." She writes, I'm pregnant, and tomorrow I'll be 41 weeks. I'm delivering at Kaiser Woodland Hills. And last Wednesday, the midwife I was working with offered to strip my membranes, but I opted not to do it. My midwife suggested coming in to do this procedure, and I'm not sure I want to do this. Okay, Dr. Stu, I don't even know what stripping membranes is. Okay, stripping membranes is where a woman gets examined, 
and a finger or two fingers gets put into the cervix and they're twisted around and around to try to ply the membranes off of the uterine wall. And in the process, what you're doing is trying to cause, excuse me, whoa, what happened there? Trying to cause a little bleeding or uh, to release some dead tissue products which carry with it some uh, uh, little chemicals called prostaglandins which tend to ripen and soften the cervix and can sometimes trigger labor. It's it's something that can be recommended as it was in, is it Jennifer? Yes. It was in Jennifer's case. It can be recommended. It's certainly a reasonable option, but it's also reasonable to refuse. One of the things that, why they offer that to her, I think in that setting, is because there's a timetable. And I don't know exactly what the rules are. She's at Kaiser, did yes, she say? she indicated, yeah. Right. And so at Kaiser, they may say by 42 weeks, if you're not delivered, the midwife can't deliver you anymore. I see. And so maybe under those pressures, you make decisions that you might not make under uh, different circumstances. It's not an unreasonable thing to do. It can be very uncomfortable. I hate when it happens when patients don't even know it. I've heard from patients that... Doctors will examine them at 40 weeks or 39 and a half weeks or 41 weeks, and they'll strip their membranes without even telling them. And suddenly it's a very uncomfortable exam. That's not ethically right to do that. And it wasn't expected. But in right. this case, she's giving you informed consent. You have the right of informed refusal. And I think either way is right. If you really want your midwife to deliver you and you're getting closer to your, to your date where they can't deliver you by policy then it's a reasonable option just to uh, let her do it. All right. That was a great question. Jen, thank you for that. And again, ask Stu at gmail.com. Stu answers all of the emails. Some of them we obviously read right here on Dr. Stu's podcast. And we do thank you for listening. We thank you for supporting the podcast. And on this Thanksgiving weekend, we want you to know how thankful we are for your listenership. Share Dr. Stu's podcast. Tweet it out. Email it to a friend. Put it up on your Facebook wall. Spread the word. Happy Thanksgiving, Brian. Thanks. Thank you. And you, Randy. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Peace on earth to everybody. Everybody have a wonderful holiday weekend. Thanks for joining us. Join us next time for Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Brian Whitman on Dr. Stu's podcast.